Stay hungry, stay foolish. It's been called the Bible for startups and the best investment a startup can ever make. A startup without customers is like a day without oxygen. And the Startup Owner's Manual helps founders get it right and shows you how to get, keep and grow customers literally every step of the way. This Owner's Manual walks entrepreneurs step by step through the proven, world-renowned customer development process for getting startups right the very first time. The Owner's Manual is adding value, structure and success to thousands of great young companies. The customer development process was developed by a Silicon Valley serial entrepreneur turned educator and based on his eight Valley startups, four of which IPO'd. He joined with serial entrepreneur Bob Dorf to build the Startup Owner's Manual as a sequel to his first book, The Four Steps to the Epiphany, which sparked the lean startup movement. The Startup Owner's Manual lays out the best practices, lessons and tips that have swept the startup world, offering a wealth of proven advice and information for entrepreneurs of all stripes. I am delighted to welcome the pioneer of the lean startup movement, the legendary Steve Blank. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. This is going to be a fun conversation if it's anything like the intro. The first thing we need to say about this book is don't attempt to read this in a single sitting over a long weekend. It's a companion over six to 30 months or more that it takes to build a successful, scalable startup. And you caution us, it's like trying to drink water from a fire hose. And unfortunately, I did that and I nearly drowned because <laughs> I only have a week between each show to read the book. It should take you as long to read it as it took us to write it, which was a long time. And putting together the pieces for a, uh, a founding CEO of a startup. And it was just some of the best practices that founders kind of need to think about when they build a business starting with what's a startup. Let's jump straight into that then. What is a startup? As you tell us, the book uses the term startup literally hundreds of times, but you share different definitions of what exactly a startup is and what it's not. You know, one of the, one of the things that struck me early on in my career as an educator after being an entrepreneur is that you could ask people what's a startup and you kind of got about a thousand different answers. And none of them really got to the core of what founders were supposed to be doing and thinking about. And so I'll give you at least the core answer, and then I'll give you some others. You know, a startup, and I'm going to say the phrase and then we'll break it down, is a temporary organization designed to search for a repeatable and scalable business model. Now, that's an interesting definition. Number one is temporary. A startup is a temporary organization. Because a lot of founders kind of forget the goal is not to have free food and your dogs in the office and a cool place to work. The goal of a startup is not to become a startup. It's hard to kind of imagine, but a goal of a startup is actually to become a large corporation or to have a large liquidity event somewhere among there. But the startup is just a temporary phase because it's designed to search. And that's also a big idea because, again, at least when I was an entrepreneur, you thought the job of a startup was, well, to build products and to ship them. Yes, but that's actually an artifact, an outcome of searching and finding the answers to something. And so what's it searching for? It's searching for something that's repeatable. It's looking for something called a repeatable and scalable business model. And the business model is kind of the core of the lean startup. 
A business model is all the components that create value for you and your customers. Again, let me break that down. A fancy word for who are your customers? What's your distribution channel? What's product market fit for those customers? That is, what features or services do they really care about to buy? What's the revenue strategy? How do you get, keep, and grow them? What are costs, activities, resources, etc.? You need to know all that stuff. So the function of a startup is to answer all those questions and then find a repeatable and scalable business model that actually generates money, revenue, users, etc. Once you understand that, then everything else is kind of, oh, I get it. You know, I'm just not shipping and building something. I'm actually treating this kind of as a strategy rather than a disconnected execution tactics. That idea, Steve, really you brought to life in the introduction. I loved the mention of the Joseph Campbell hero with a thousand faces because it's funny. It was something that I noticed when I first started this show. It was a pivot, actually. The original show was interviewing entrepreneurs and startups. And what I found was exactly what you said here. The hero's journey applies not just to startups, but to any meaningful adventure. Because what I found was it was actually always the same story. And I'd love if you introduced it that way. For your listeners not familiar with Joseph Campbell, he was kind of an anthropologist and sociologist who was a writer who, who basically noticed that almost all myths from ancient history, whether they were Greeks or Hebrew or Indian cultures or Chinese, all kind of had the same basic hero's journey, where a hero hears a calling and then turns down the invitation to the calling, and then something dramatic happens, and then they puts together a set of companions, and they go on a quest, and they go through a series of tests and trials, and then they reach the goal, but the hero has to die and then is reborn. And it's the story of Moses, and it's also the story of Luke Skywalker, and everything in between. And I found it's the story of an entrepreneur. It's what you end up doing. And so once you understand, A, that there's a pattern here, you can then go, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, what is that pattern, and how do I optimize succeeding along those paths? And what's most interesting it's a radically different pattern that what investors in the 20th century was telling us the journey was about. They were absolutely wrong. This is still in the ether where people think, oh, you need to spread your bets wildly enough and widely enough yes. in order to have a success. But you flipped that model and you said, that, no, actually, this is a repeatable model. The key here is that winners recognize their startup is a series of untested hypotheses while losers blindly execute a rigid product management and introduction methodology. What I found unbelievably similar was not only the startup methodology, but corporate entrepreneurship or innovation within a big organization is the same thing. And there are these two different modes of being that absolutely clash with each other. Well, in large corporations, i got to tell you a very funny story. Is when I started working with large companies and, and uh, government agencies, there's almost always some kind of award for internal entrepreneurs who accomplish something spectacular. You know, the, hey, this person worked against all odds in the system and look what they got done, etc. You know, I call these the kind of entrepreneur heroes. People do this without realizing that they're celebrating that their system is dramatically broken. <laughs> it's a big idea. Instead of saying, well, wait a minute, these people are fighting the system and we're, we're rewarding them for beating the system. 
<laughs> perhaps, we, perhaps we ought to consider that there's something wrong with the system. But no one has done that. We go, well, that's great. Now let's go on with our current business. And that's because one of the epiphanies I had is early on in, the, in building Lean is that a startup isn't a smaller version of a large company because large companies execute known business models, but startups search for them. As I started working with corporations and governments, I realized, well, that might be true, but companies aren't larger versions than startups. They can't do the things that startups do. Let's come back to that, actually, because I thought a great way, Steve, to tee up the challenge is the cautionary tale of Webvan, because this really brings it to life when you treat a startup like you do with a predictable business model, Webvan is what happens. Webvan, for your listeners who are not familiar with something their grandfather probably remembered, is that in the in the last half of the 20th century, in the internet bubble, uh, some folks decided to do what today is kind of now understood, which is to have home delivery of groceries, reinvent the grocery stores. But these guys raised close to $800 million, started building massive distribution centers throughout the United States to kind of make this happen, even though the evidence as they were getting early customers was no customers weren't quite buying the way they thought they would, but it didn't matter. They just had a plan. They executed the plan. And, you know, unfortunately, they weren't wrapping all the groceries in the business plan because people weren't reading the plan and they weren't acting like the behavior in the plan. And so the company burned through its $800 $800 million of cash because they ignored the data about customers. They just kind of said, well, we got a plan. Here's what it says. And come heck or high water, that's what we're going to go do. And they kind of fell into the trap of some of the nine deadly sins of a startup. Let's tee that up and talk about the nine deadly sins. But before we go there, you mentioned the product introduction model, concept stage, product development stage, alpha beta testing, and product launch date. I'd love if you shared these. In the 20th century, there was a, a way to manage products that was well-developed. It was called the waterfall development model. And it said you built products in a serial method. You wrote down a specification from maybe marketing, called the market requirements document. You handed it to engineering. Engineering started building the product. They wrote a functional spec, started building the product, and went through something called alpha test, beta test, and first customer ship. Um, And that was called waterfall because it went from stage to stage to stage. And while you kind of gave lip service to getting feedback from customers in alpha and beta, it was actually engineering who wanted the feedback to see if the product is well designed, had any bugs and needed any, you know, things that, that needed to be fixed. But the features had already been determined way back on day one. And you were shipping whatever was in somebody's mind, you know, a year ago or two two years earlier. Now, this works great. It's not a stupid idea when, in fact, the problem and solution are well known before you start. And that there can be cases in a large existing company when you're building the 28th version of the same product and adding new features that you know customers have asked for and you have lots of evidence. So Waterfall wasn't a completely idiotic idea, but the mistake was startups and their investors looked at large companies and said, well, large companies do Waterfall and they spec the product and founders have the vision and we're funding this vision. What could go wrong? 
So we'll give the founders a pile. They'll use nine slides, raise money. We'll give them a pile of money. And they'll write an income statement, a balance sheet, cash flow, where they'll forecast revenue, they'll forecast burn rate. And we're going to focus on first customer ship because obviously on day one, the only thing we need to worry about is whether our building is big enough to hold the bags of money that are going to come in. How, how can that go wrong? Um, well, what really happens, of course, is that in a startup, no one noticed. This is a big idea. We didn't notice this difference between startups and large companies. In a large company, you have all this information. You know your existing customers. You know your distribution channel. You know what they're buying. You know competitors. In a startup, you don't have any of that. You have a set of beliefs. In fact, on day one, a startup is closer to a faith-based organization than anything else. It's actually a religious organization. We have none of the, this data. So in fact, all we have is a series of untested hypotheses, which is a fancy word for we're guessing about most stuff. We might have a core piece of technology, but you're actually guessing who the customer is and you're guessing you know, how to price it. And you're guessing, more importantly, what features those customers who are guessing about might want. And so what I observed is we need a much different process than Waterfall because by the time we ship the product, we were almost always wrong about all these things. So that was the standard model. And I did that for 21 years. In fact, every entrepreneur in the world did that. And it wasn't until I retired and started thinking about the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship and my experience in actually building alternatives to this and how I got it right and how startups were getting it wrong. And, and you know, by this time I'm retired, I'm sitting on boards and watching lots of other companies. I'm realizing that this model that we had a, a simply blindly adopted from large corporations was a, a complete mismatch from what startups were doing. And the light bulb went on that said we needed our own tools and own methodology that was radically different from just copying, making assumptions that everything we think is correct. That is, venture capitalist investors used to make us write business plans. And, and I realized that business plans still ought to be taught in universities, but more likely in the English department because they were the best examples of creative writing <laughs> that anyone would ever do. It's a creative writing exercise. You were you were just making stuff up to kind of convince people. You might have had a great compelling idea and you might have had an insight or two, um, but there was no possible way you could have predicted the future because you most often, almost 99% of entrepreneurs didn't go out and gather data. They, they sat around and wrote a plan. And that created just a huge amount of infant mortality, meaning startups were failing when all they should have done is a little more research. Yeah, and it happens in corporate entrepreneurship and innovation the whole time. And in an indirect way, I, I have to thank you because you helped me leave an organization I worked in for almost a decade. And what happened, actually, I had read your work and I had read your first test of this model, which was Eric Reese, who would talk about it in a little while. But I'd read the Lean Startup as well. And I was like, oh, look, there's a whole new methodology of how to do innovation in big corporations here. And like you said, with those awards where they celebrate some corporate innovator, they said, oh, Aiden, you need to go on a course on how to do waterfall project development. Yeah. So it wasn't like the system's broken. It's like, we'll have to retrain this poor guy who's going on this crazy new way of thinking. So many great ideas and great concepts are still born 
And what you said here really resonated. Once a waterfall process starts, the proverbial train has left the station and the product is nearly impossible to revise. As a rule, the train can run almost nonstop for 18 to 24 months or more and uninterrupted by changes or new ideas that matter. And that is the problem. And what's worse is that in startups, we not only adopted that methodology, we adopted the titles that go with large corporations. That is, it used to be that on day one, you would look at you know your business plan and go, or oh, here's where we're going to hire the VP of sales and VP of marketing and VP of biz dev and VP of engineering. And, and almost also by doing that, you've locked yourself into a traditional model that says, well, obviously, you know, we're just after the product is built, all we need to do is sell it. And therefore, everything will come out great. And what's more importantly is that we assumed that if it didn't come out great, it wasn't the fault of the investors or the plan or the model, which we didn't even have a word for at the time, obviously it was those fault of the individuals. So the way we fixed it is we started firing people. And the first person we would fire is the VP of sales. And obviously we're not making the numbers. There's nothing wrong with the product. And that's, that's what we asked for. That's what we got. And the new VP of sales is a big idea would come in and go, well, that was a stupid strategy. I'm not going to do the same one. And they would actually have permission to change something because they're the new person. And if that didn't work, we'd fire the VP of marketing <laughs> and they would come in and only then would they have permission to change the positioning. And if that didn't work, we'd fire the founder, the, the VP of engineering. The point is the only time we would are allowed to do something we now call the pivot is when we fired people. A big idea of lean is now our first instinct is just baked into the process is no, no, no. We're going to fire a part of the plan first. Even though we don't call it that, a pivot is actually firing part of the plan. It says, you thought these were the customers? Well, before we fire a VP of sales, let's go figure out if this was the right customer, not the right VP of sales. Oh, that didn't work? Well, we sure th these are the features these customers want? Oh, it's not? Let's fire part of the product. Holy cow. Just think about what a shift in mindset that is. Instead of saying that God wrote the plan, we're saying people wrote the plan and that it's not a faith-based organization. We need to get facts as rapidly as possible to replace faith. And that's the whole idea of customer development and customer discovery. The whole beginning of Lean says there are no facts inside your building, so get the heck outside. It was just such a huge mindset shift of thinking about well, wait a minute, why would we want to do that? We're the smartest people in the building. And the answer I tell everybody is, of course, you're the smartest people in the building. You might even be the smartest people on the block. But unless you're going to be buying all your products, that doesn't matter. Because you're not smarter than the collective intelligence of your potential customers. And, and as smart as you are, even if you were in the same business last week, you don't know everything about how are they going to buy? What else are they looking at? What's the right price? What are the right features? So why don't you get out and first validate that the problem you think you're solving is a problem that other people would say, yes, we have that problem or need, or yes, we pay for that. And then number two is validate whether the thing you're building or proposing to build would actually solve that problem such that when people hear about it or see it, your pupils dilate and they grab you by the collar and say, you're not leaving. 
until I get to either buy this, use it, or play with it. I love this, Stephen. There's a great quote where you bring this to life and you say, this mode, which is search mode, embraces failure as part of the startup process and innovation process. And unlike existing companies that fire executives when they fail to match a plan, we keep the founders and we change the model, not change the founders. And that's how you validate the hypothesis. And that's a radically different departure from I'll build it and they'll come. And in fact, in Silicon Valley, it wasn't until Andreas and Horowitz, a venture firm, embraced this idea of keep the founders and fire the plan, essentially adopting lean, that we started generating unicorns. That is, companies with valuations north of a billion dollars. So not only did lean change how entrepreneurs think about companies, it implicitly changed how VCs treated entrepreneurs. So thank you, all the unicorns. Please send your money to Steve Blank at <laughs> steveblank.com. I'm taking contributions. But seriously, it changed the notion of what the role of founders were and, in fact, how investors would tolerate risk. It used to be if you deviated from the plan, you were going to be the ex-CEO. Nowadays, at least most VCs, at minimum, give lip service to lean. Some of them actually understand it. And most of them see what happens is that there's almost no plan that survives first contact with customers. Almost every startup ends up doing something different than they assumed they were doing on day one. Huge concept. When I used to talk to VCs in the 20th century, they all acknowledged that and then moved on. <laughs> They'd say, oh, yeah, no one else ends up with it. Well, what do we do about that? Well, yes, Steve, go execute the plan. <laughs> well, wait a minute. <laughs> and, and, and to be fair... And this was a real eye-opener for me. It turns out that neither venture capitalists nor people in business schools who were, you would have thought were the ones to recognize this were focused on solving the problem. VCs, to their credit, yeah, realized it wasn't optimal, but they were making too much money as is using Waterfall and having this massive failure rate up front to want to change anything. And ironically, business school professors where this should have started the reaction I got was, at the time, frustrating and now kind of funny, is they said, Steve, we consult for the world's largest companies. How hard could six people in a garage be? Wow. I wow. swear, that was the answer I got. Yeah, and it was the nature of business school professors' consulting practices in the 20th century is, why would they consult for startups? They consulted for places where they could make massive amounts of cash. But that meant they had no hands-on experience of how different startups actually were from large corporations. And therefore, the innovation for Lean didn't come from academia or research. It came from practitioners like me and Eric, who kind of said, no, this isn't how the world works. You're analyzing the wrong data set. You don't have enough data to understand how startups and large companies are different. Uh, now, of course, the same people kind of laughed at it. Now teach Lean, though I have to tell you, in the uh, certainly in the top 10 business schools, they still can't bring themselves to call it that, so they rename it something else. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> even in places I teach, they teach my class, but I get no credit. But I'm more than happy that the bar had been raised. For I find it amusing that we truly have changed the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship, both in practice and in education. You have to remember, a decade ago, the capstone or top class you could take in a university was how to write a business plan. And that was it. No one recognized that. Why are we teaching something that no one reads and, and no one wants, though they still make you write? And one of the reasons I wanted to share your work, Steve, was 
This is the same as entrepreneurship or corporate innovation. It's a startup within a big business, but it's much, much more difficult because at least a startup has somewhat what autonomy. Yes, the VC may be putting pressure to execute to a plan, but the VC in a corporation is their traditional business. And that puts massive pressure on the entrepreneur or the corporate innovator who wants to change the business and is made to execute to a plan or made to execute to the metrics of the business as usual. Yes. So it took me a while to kind of understand what was broken in a large corporation and government agency. And the problem, surprisingly, is not that there aren't innovative people in large companies or governments. Let me say that again. There's probably, or in a different way, there's probably more innovative people in companies and government agencies than there are in startups. It's a big idea. It's, it's not that they don't have that same talent embedded in their companies. Those individuals who work there have different personal risk profiles. They won't bet their family's mortgage or kid's trust fund or, or college education on it, but they're there. The problem is, is that the way companies are built, the nature of the corporation is built to execute a repeatable process. They have found scale. That is, companies exist for scale. And when you have scale, you build process and procedures and manuals and metrics and OKRs and KPIs and financial metrics and internal metrics. And you build culture that is basically, think of it as turning the crank. People come to work to do a job. And that's not bad. That's, in fact, it's not bad on multiple levels. It's, as I said, it's how companies historically have scaled. And it's how 99% of most people are comfortable going in, doing a job, going home, and living the rest of their lives. Because as a reminder, only crazy people want to go out into the unknown and, and chaos and start something new. But it's actually the fact that corporations are designed historically, underlying historically, for operations in steady-state environments for scale. And by the way, that could go on forever, except the world is never steady-state. That is, you never have a monopoly forever. You know, Maybe Google for the next 10 or 20 years. Microsoft thought they had it for 20 years. All those things tend to, the auto companies had them for maybe 80 years. Those are crumbling. So business models eventually collapse. And when they collapse, the steady state model of process, procedure, et cetera, doesn't work anymore. And so how do you deal with disruption in a company or government agency? By the way, when a company fails, you know, the economy doesn't go out of business and something else replaces it. But government being disrupted or a government agency, that's a different story. That's a national problem. 20 or 30 years ago, two professors, Tushman and O'Reilly, actually gave this a label, what companies need to do. They called it an ambidextrous organization. That is, companies need to figure out how to execute and innovate in parallel. And Clayton Christensen struggled with this as well. Companies need to do both things, and they're very different things. And because the motivations are different, because the processes are different, because the mindsets are different, it's very hard for a company with execution DNA, who could have been the world's best executor, to survive in a disruptive world. That's why almost, not, not every, but almost every large company that faces a transition in customers or technology or markets almost always fails to make that transition.
Not all of them, but most of them. All those computer companies in the 1980s that had to deal with personal computers, only one major company managed to make the transition. It was IBM. The same with like web and mobile. Everybody failed, including Microsoft. And a new set of companies like Google and, and others emerged that figured out search and mobile. The incumbent software companies just kind of blew it. And I'll start with it's because there is no formal innovation doctrine. An innovation doctrine is what's the rules and processes I need to deal with in innovation? How do I set up an ambidextrous organization? What's the role of leadership? How do I, in fact, communicate the mission? What are the processes and procedures that need to be set up in parallel? What's an end-to-end innovation process? How does that work? Is there an innovation pipeline in the company? All those things need to be done as a strategy from the top down, not via, again, heroic innovation. Remember, we were talking about we celebrate the heroes? Well, that's (laughs) because none of this was being discussed on the at the board level, on the C level, there was no process for innovation. And again, 30 years ago, McKinsey actually gave a kind of a, a nice overlay for if you're thinking about how to do innovation in an, amb- in an ambidextrous way, that is, again, think of that word meaning chew gum and walk at the same time. They said there are three horizons of innovation. Horizon one is how do we add more features to existing products or how do we get more existing customers or better supply chain, et cetera. Horizon two is how do we get adjacent markets or how do we sell our existing products to new segments or how do we use our technology to find new opportunities? And horizon three, horizon three is what Amazon is great at and Apple under Steve Jobs was great at. How do we spin out and create entirely new businesses, completely new businesses and disrupt ourselves? That's what startups do. And it used to be that took decades or years. Now, in fact, you could just do those almost overnight using existing components. But again, those three horizons give leadership a way to think about, maybe this is a framework I should be thinking about. And by the way, companies have advantages here. Where startups just need to generate all this stuff internally, companies could partner, they could acquire, they could buy IP, they could buy products. They could do lots more things than startups can. And some of them do it successfully, but for most of them, this is hard because it's a major mind shift for the C-level and boards. And I just want to remind everybody who's in a large corporation, think about who your CEO and board is. The odds are they came up through the ranks as world-class executors. That is, the founders of your large corporations are typically long gone, except for tech companies where they're still running them. But in almost every other industry, the founders are gone and the executors are running the show. And most often your board is staffed with world-class lawyers or bankers or finance people, but almost no crazy people. (laughs) And I have a heuristic that is if your board in a large company or government agency doesn't have one-sixth to one-third crazy people, you are not going to be able to deal with disruption. Big idea. It's one of the reasons I think your work is now evolved to become so important for corporate organizations because I know originally it was for startups and understanding on how to build companies, but now it's how to reinvent companies in a way because we live in this world of this acronym VUCA, which is volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And the topple rate of businesses is increasing and getting faster and faster. Therefore, the models and the ideas and the mindset which you talk about becomes increasingly important within 
organizations that already have established markets, established business models, etc. So this mindset needs to leak into organizations that are well established, have coffers full of revenue, and now's the time they need to innovate. Yes, you said it perfectly. And it's a world of chaos and uncertainty versus a world of pristine execution. I mean, just think if you were a packaged goods company, you know, selling to consumers. In the old days, you owned a brand and there was brand loyalty and you had retail channels and whatever. That's all gone. Millennials and, and Generation Z and others just don't care about brands. Brands could be created overnight. Retail channels, it's now either the web or Amazon. And not that retail doesn't have a function, but that's no longer the only place to entry. And more importantly for large companies, and this is the real eye-opener, in the 20th century, you competed with your peers. That is, other large companies. Whoever thought of a startup as a competitor to Procter & Gamble or to a retail channel in the United States like Macy's or something else, now you're dealing with startups that have more capital than you do. Unbelievable. So, Steve, one of the things I thought we might talk about was the nine deadly sins of the new product introduction model, because this really brings to life the challenges and also the challenge without just being a startup, but also in a corporate organization. And then perhaps we'll start looking at some of the solutions. Yeah. So number one is just thinking about the things that startups typically got wrong in the 20th century and, and kind of a little frustrating. They're still getting wrong in the 21st is number one is, is the biggest sin is assuming, you know, what your customer wants. And that's kind of driven from the founders unwaveringly beliefs that they understand who they are, what they need. And that's important because the founder has passion and vision, and that's what it takes to kind of start something from scratch on a napkin. But on day one, a startup has no customers. And unless they're really, really, really a true domain expert, they're only guessing about the customer problem. And as I said, that makes this a faith-based organization. To succeed, founders need to turn these guesses into facts as soon as possible by getting out of the building and asking customers if their hypotheses are correct, and changing them if they're wrong. And so the second one is, we talked about this, is, and it's, it's a derivative of the first one, is the founders have complete belief, is not only do I un understand the customers, I know what features to build. So if I know the customers, I assume all those features those customers need. That is, I'm assuming what we now call product market fit. That's what you should be searching for, not assuming you have it. And the mistake is we design and build a fully featured product using Waterfall without ever leaving the building. And you can almost guarantee that, that those features and those customers are going to be wrong. The third sin is focusing on the product launch date. I've told my investors and my team we're launching on day X. And that's the immovable date. And we're going to pick some event or we're going to CES and we're launching the product or we're going to a conference, and then we work backwards from that. The problem is that it doesn't mean on that date you actually understand product market fit. Even though you're setting the date for that, you might be announcing or launching something that's very wrong. So it's almost like putting the gun to your head and announcing the date. You're pulling the trigger. <laughs> why, why, why would you do that? And, and, and that whole thing about setting the date and waterfall, gets you into the fourth sin, which is emphasizing execution instead of testing, learning, and iteration. As I said earlier, existing companies can do this because they understand customers and problems and product features you need. But in a startup, the goal is 
to find what we call product market fit. Do I truly understand who my customers are and do I truly understand what are the top features or services or or things they want to do or buy or pay for? And if not, keep searching before I start executing. Doesn't mean your engineering and development group isn't building minimum viable products, but, but to think that I'm finished rather than testing, learning, and iterating till I find product market fit is mistake four. There's a quote I pulled from this one that I think is so important, again, for those corporations. You say, startup cultures emphasize get it done and get it done fast. So when somebody's hired as a head of engineering or head of sales or head of marketing into those businesses, they assume that that's what they're hired for and their experience is relevant to this new venture and that all they need to do is put that knowledge to work managing the execution. And that's the problem. And actually, you jump to Sin 6. We'll get back to Sin 5. But you just talked about confusing traditional titles with startup needs. I mean, that's that was another big light bulb for me. You hire a VP of sales, what do they think they're supposed to do? Not do any search. You gave them a title that says sales. Well, sales isn't ask any questions. Sales is, hey, here's my pitch. What do you think? Here's the price. You want to buy it? Yeah. I mean, in, in a more sophisticated way. Marketing. Oh, my job. Oh, we're going to have a product launch. Or, oh, I need to customer acquisition. And here's our customer acquisition. Well, here's the activities I'm going to do. Well, do you understand who the customers are? So instead of locking people into titles with a well-understood group of customers with standard presentations, startups have very few facts on day one. And so you first want to do customer discovery and customer validation. And the sales and marketing titles kind of confuse people who are used to execution. So that's kind of sin six is confusing traditional job titles with startup needs. Sin five, I'll just back up a bit, was writing a plan that doesn't allow for trial and error. Traditional business plans, one great advantage for investors and for boards in large companies and or management, they provide a pretty unambiguous path with defined milestones. You can track financial progress with income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow, but none of these metrics are useful for a startup because your goal is none of that on day one. Your goal is to find, if you remember, is to find a repeatable and scalable business model. You don't have enough evidence or data to go execute a plan. And so writing a plan that doesn't allow you to iterate, pivot, and learn is a path of disaster. Sin 7 is just executing on a sales and marketing plan. This kind of repeats the idea is that when you hire VPs and execs with the wrong skills to find product market fit, you tend to focus on a plan rather than focusing on learning. And then number eight is premature scaling. This one I see even with companies with infinite capital. If you just presume you're going to succeed, you end up baking in what's called burn rate. That is just the amount of money you're burning every month, assuming that the revenue or users or whatever your metrics are just going to come flooding in. And this model leaves little room for error or and, and almost no room for learning and iteration. And this pressure sometimes comes from your board and investors is, well, no, 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 here's all the money, just go execute. And it happens in every bubble. We'll give you hundreds of millions of dollars here, or tens of millions or lots of money, go execute. Premature scaling is a, just incredibly painful because at minimum it leads to layoffs and, and just uncomfortable stuff. And the last one is management by crisis. 
by the time you ship a product and sales aren't happening to the plan, this whole cycle of firing executives and layoffs start happening. And you didn't realize that the real problem was on day one, no business plan survived first contact with customers. The assumptions in a plan are a series of untested hypotheses. Smart startups actually start pivoting or change their business model when they get results. And it's not a crisis. It's just part of learning and discovery. And so death spirals are not like a fun place to be either for the founders or for anybody working in that company. So those are the kind of nine startup deadly sins. I'm sure there are a million others. Nowadays, in this land of infinite capital, there are other sins. I'd probably add a tenth one of taking too much money. What most founders don't understand is the minute you take money from someone, their business model has now become yours. It's a big idea. Because now I just tell my students and companies I work with, go up to the whiteboard and draw me, your investors, your VCs, your angel investors, what's their model for making money? What do you mean? They just wrote me a check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they wrote you a check for X, million or hundreds of thousands. Tell me how much money they want to make and by when. Well, I don't know. Well, you're screwed. You have no idea. One thing you said there is the last step when a company actually graduates. So when it doesn't commit the nine deadly sins and it follows your model. And oftentimes what happens then, what ensues is a version of a Shakespearean tragedy as VCs realize they have a hit with a potential for a large return on their investment. All of a sudden, the passionate visionary entrepreneur is no longer deemed the right person to lead the now successful company. He or she has nurtured from cocktail napkin to high trajectory. The board, graciously or not, ousts the founder and his and her innate customer understanding, trading him or her for a suit and experienced operating executives. This is something we see time and time again. And it still happens, even though VCs have gotten much better, as I said, Andreas and Horowitz and then other VC firms followed the learning how to keep the founder in place. But here was the light bulb that went on for me. Startups are not one activity. Remember, I said they're a temporary organization. So if you think about it, that phase one for a startup is this search for a business model. Particularly for most startups, it's the search for product market fit. That's a big idea. That requires customer development skills, pivoting, testing, MVP, minimum viable products, getting out of the building a lot, et cetera. That requires a founder and a founding team doing all these things we've talked about. But the day you find product market fit, all of a sudden, that's done. If not done forever, now you need to start building an organization that could execute Hey, I found the right customers of markets. Now we need to start selling. And now we need to start validating by selling. Now we go into execution mode. Is that same team who was great at finding product market fit, great at executing? That is, how do we get to kind of continual repeatable revenue? How do we grow from 10, 15, 40 people, 50 people who found product market fit? How do we go to 500 or 800 people? And then when we finally find a repeatable and scalable model that's, you know, cash flow positive, how do we scale the company? So search, execute, and scale, grow are different phases. Number one is, as a founder, you don't get a memo. Number two is, you don't even get the training to get you from one phase to another. As a founder, either you're great or not of finding product market fit, you're either going to be in business or not. 
But when you get to the next step, are you actually good at building departments, putting in sales comp plans, hiring salespeople, you know, managing, like, how do I write the onboarding and HR manual for the company? And then am I the person to run a 10 or hundred or billion dollar company, hundred million dollar company? It's not necessarily true that this almost never that the same team and same founders are great at each step without coaching or, or some other skill kind of insertion. And so in the past, the VCs recognized this and said, well, that's great, but you know, we're going to bring in a suit to kind of help you do this. And then when Google and Facebook came around, they said, well, no, we'll bring in some, we'll leave you in place, but we'll bring in either a CEO like Eric Schmidt at Google or COO, chief operating officer like Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook. Or we now recognize that, you know what, there's no real magic here. If you're smart and very smart as a founder, we're going to train, handhold you and coach you by actually giving you resources, actually even putting in place people and resources that can help you learn how to do, teach you how to do sales and teach you how to do growth, but leave you in place. Because what's changed in the 21st century is something really interesting. In the 20th century, you could have one product idea and take it all the way through product market fit to scale, to growth, to a liquidity event that is making money was via something called an IPO. You went public. And no investment bank wanted to see a 23-year-old in a hoodie. In fact, even Steve Jobs needed to hire a CEO to go public. Jobs wasn't the CEO when they went on the roadshow because no one would believe him. And so they would bring in a suit. And what was interesting is, even if the founder wasn't there, that same product idea could last three, four, five years. Fast forward to the 21st century, product ideas at best last a year. And then someone else in the nature of competition, nature of technology, nature of something changes so rapidly if that if the founding team isn't still there continually creating new products and ideas and business models, you're going to be out of business before the investors could capture any return on their investment. And so now there's more evidence to say we still need that innovative team, not only in the company, but in charge. So let's kind of bulk them up with these other skill sets we used to replace them for. It often explains those people who are in organizations who listen to this show, they're frustrated because they're just painting by numbers. They're in execution mode when that's not what they should be doing. They should be the people out exploring in search mode, trying things, learning by mistakes, learning by error and bringing in new ideas, etc. Because they're two different. You mentioned the ambidextrous organization. There's the ambidextrous individual as well. So there's different types of people for different modes of the business. Yes. When you don't understand that the business has shifted into the next mode, you're probably either going to tank your company or you're going to be replaced. And so you always need to be asking is, what mode am I in? And am I still doing the old stuff or do I need to be learning new things and doing new things? So I thought we would share the customer development model. And in the context of Lean and the world's first Lean startup, which is IMVU, which were co-founders, Will and Eric Reese, who I mentioned earlier on, the author of the Lean Startup book. But you were one of the earlier investors in IMVU. I love this. And you said, sure, I'll invest, but... As long as you test out my new customer development model, and that's how these guys succeeded hugely. Yes, I'm going to tell that story, but I'm going to tell it in the context of what Lean is. We've been talking about this the whole show, and 
And I want to go back and talk about the three parts of Lean and then talk about how Eric Will Harvey and Alexander Osterwalder became the founders of the Lean Method. And so Lean Startup has three parts. One is the part I kind of been talking about on this show is, you know, customer development, which simply says, again, there are no facts inside the building. Let's get outside. But what do we do once we're outside the building? What is it we're looking for? What things do we want to test? How do we kind of, you know, ask these questions? And so the first book I wrote, Four Steps to the Epiphany, pointed out the mistakes we were making, which we just talked about, and actually articulated a process to, to do this. The Startup Owner's Manual, the book you've been reading, talks about an end-to-end process that assumes we now understand what lean is. But the next part of what became lean said, well, you're outside the building, you're talking to people, maybe you ought to show them iterative and incremental things you're building because you're using a different method called agile engineering, which I'll explain in a second. You could build minimum viable products. And the third part of lean that says, well, how do we know what hypotheses are we testing? We've been using this word business model a lot. And there was a guy named Alexander Osterwalder that recognized that, look, when you want to take an idea or a technology or something to market or solve a problem or fulfill a need, your idea or technology is not the business. A business is made of who are the customers and how are you going to distribute the product and how do you price it and what are the costs? And he put together a simple diagram called a business model canvas that allows you to kind of write down all these guesses or what I call hypotheses, all your assumptions. And it turns out the lean startup is nothing more than all three of our works. Alexander Osterwalder's business model canvas to kind of write down your hypotheses, my customer development process to kind of get out of the building and test them. And Eric Reese's observation that what goes with customer development is not waterfall engineering, but agile engineering. And in fact, that's the method that we kind of now teach and that has kind of become widely adopted and is part of that startup owner's manual you've been quoting from. Now, the story of how this happened was really interesting. Now, this is back to the story of Eric and Will. Is I kind of wrote this book, Four Steps to the Epiphany, and started teaching this class, as this is a class at UC Berkeley in the business school, where Jerry Engel, who the head of the entrepreneurship department, was nice enough to allow me to create a class um, on this. And I had known um, Will Harvey, the founder of a company called IMVU, a new startup, and his new VP of engineering, Eric Reese, from a failed startup I invested in before. And Will, before that, had been a VP of engineering of mine in one of my companies. And they wanted to get this game company funded. And after losing money on their last company, I said, okay, I'm happy to fund you guys, but you got to take my class instead of... <laughs> Doing what we did last company, which truly was, I mean, it was a classic nine deadly sins. We did 11 of them. That's how bad it was. Uh, I said, why don't we kind of avoid, truly, I didn't articulate it that way, but we did every, every one of those mistakes. I said, I got a different method. If you guys want my money, take the class. And they'd grumble because they'd have to drive from Palo Alto all the way up to Berkeley at the time. And But, you know, finally, like, Eric said, oh, my gosh, this like explains a lot of why we screwed it up. And But, Steve, the one thing you don't understand is there's something that replaces waterfall engineering. In the 21st century, now we're starting to do something called agile engineering. 
And agile is the antithesis of waterfall. Just for your listeners who, the two people who probably don't understand it, but that included me at the time was, remember waterfall was a step-by-step serial process that when that train started, you weren't getting it off. But agile engineering said, no, we could build products now incrementally and iteratively, getting feedback at each step, whether it's hardware or software. So while we're doing customer development, it was perfect to actually be showing people kind of, well, is this what you had in mind? Or, gee, what if I changed it here? So the product was as agile as your customer development process was and your ability to kind of model the business model. And so Eric Reese and Will Harvey, Eric running engineering, became the first practitioner of the lean startup anywhere in the world. And he was the one who paired customer development with agile engineering. And IMVU became our test bed. I was sitting on their board of directors, and we'd run experiments, and Eric would actually do all, all the heavy lifting and doing that. And, uh, and after that startup, Eric became the world's biggest evangelist of, of Lean. And a- after Eric started evangelizing it, I discovered uh, uh, Alexander Osterwalder's model of the business model canvas, which was the last missing piece. Is, yes, we were testing hypotheses, but we didn't quite exactly know what hypotheses we should be testing. And now there's a simple diagram that everybody, I think, mostly understands. And if you haven't seen his book, Business Model Generation, it's my books, Eric Reese's Lean Startup and Ostromalder's Business Model Generation, it's kind of the three kind of trinity of what became lean. It really was the three of us working together, consciously and unconsciously, that developed a substitute for the management stack that had been built for 100 years in business school for execution, if you think about it, there was no management stack for startups or for their investors. And so our work was the beginning. Truly, there was no literature in the 20th century on innovation in new ventures, or maybe you could count it on on your hands. While there had been 100 years of literature and thinking about this, fast forward two decades now, there are hundreds, if not thousands of books on lean and innovation and agile and whatever and I, I think both Eric and I and Alex are incredibly proud that we helped create a revolution about a, just a whole new mode of thinking. And I keep waiting for somebody to do one better, and it'll eventually come. But I think this is kind of the best practice right now. If you're a founder of a startup or you're trying to build innovation in a large company, my next book on innovation doctrine will be focusing on how to actually do this in large corporations. Because right now in large companies, what we're doing is copying startups and ending up mostly with innovation theater, not real innovation. That's another podcast and another story. Yeah, we'll do that one again. And Alex is coming on the show in a few weeks, actually. Oh, great. I started into the business world late. I was playing professional sport and I retired in in my early 30s. And the first books I read, I didn't read old MBA books. I didn't read old ways of working. They were your books which was really interesting. It was yours, it was Eric's, and it was Alex's, because I was told by a wise person, they said, these are the books you need to be reading, because these are the books that are most relevant to the business market today. And they're still unbelievably relevant, as you say. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Steve, and having you on the show. And if people want to find out more, you have a plethora of studies and articles and videos, and you're incredibly generous with giving away this knowledge. Where can people find out more about your work? So I have a website that was designed in the 19th century uh, called, <laughs> called steveblank.com. So it's not hard to find. And there are links to you know the categories on the left. 
there are tabs on the top of uh, books to read and there's some fun stuff on the secret history of Silicon Valley. Um, and buried in there is a link to all the slides my students have ever produced. And you can find that on slideshare.net slash sblank and steveblank.com for uh, st- war stories and how I actually came to this. And I think you'll find some interesting material. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, author of The Four Steps to the Epiphany, Holding the Cat by the Tail, and The Startup Owner's Manual, and a host of other Steve Blank podcasts, articles, etc. Steve Blank, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's fun.